Hello, and welcome to the MoMA Magazine podcast. I'm Paola Antonelli, Senior Curator of Architecture and Design here at MoMA. For the next four weeks, I'll be your host for our new podcast series, Broken Nature. Together, we will explore some of the fragile but fundamental ties that connect humans to the rest of nature, to the world around us, and how design might help us repair them. The title Broken Nature comes from the exhibition that inspired this podcast series, a version of which is currently on view at MoMA. It explores and advocates for the concept of restorative design, a vision of design that is aware of its own responsibility in the environmental crisis and is engaged in making things better, not only for humans, but also for other species. For this podcast, we're taking this idea global by looking at some of the most urgent challenges facing our planet from a systemic lens. We will break down some of the intangible and complex systems that sustain and permeate our lives and ask how we might redesign them and make them fairer to all humans and other species. In particular, we will look at the systems of food, fashion, the body, and at the legal frameworks through which we look at nature. In our first episode, we're going to talk about one of the most ubiquitous things in our lives. It's in our food, in our cosmetics, in fuel, in medicines, in cleaning products. You might not expect it, but this ever-present thing is corn. Today, we will look at this versatile crop from its ancient beginnings as a food source actually designed by humans in what is known today as Mexico, to its contemporary reign as the United States' largest crop. Looking at food from the lens of complex systems requires investigating some of the different pressure points that have shaped our food landscape into what we know it to be today. And this starts by understanding the extent to which corn has invaded our everyday lives. We begin this episode by talking to Bex, who runs Corn Allergy Girl, a blog that documents their own journey living with an extreme corn allergy and provides tips for people with the same condition. Hello, Bex. Welcome to MoMA. Tell us, who are you and what do you do? I accidentally became known as the corn allergy girl. Throughout my childhood and young adulthood, I was having uh, weird disease spells, uh, joint pain, bone pain, just strange, unexplainable feelings of unwellness. Finally, somebody suggested that I do allergy testing and an elimination diet. So this is in my early 20s. I actually figured out corn was a problem then, but I figured out at that point that I needed to look at a label, and if it said corn on it, then I should not eat it. Over the next six, seven years, through kind of a series of um, unfortunate choices, uh, trying to accommodate that severe allergy, um, I actually accidentally made things worse <laughs> to the point that I was beyond what any support groups could help me with and uh, became kind of a trailblazer trying to figure out how to avoid literal molecules of corn in the air. And that is not an easy feat, as you have found out. It's literally impossible without a hermetically sealed environment. I suppose you could move to the mountains and never leave the mountains. So, for instance, let's go through the life of a pre-pandemic person. Where do you encounter corn in the life of a human being in a city? 
well, before you leave your house, that's going to be your body products. Lotion, toothpaste, shampoo, conditioner is all going to contain emollients and emulsifiers and uh, stabilizers and uh, preservatives that are going to be made from the cheapest and most readily available source of fat, so corn oil, of sugar, so corn dextrose or glucose. Once I actually get out of my house, uh, the traffic fumes in New York full of ethanol that's in the gas. Grocery stores are almost worse than other public places because it's a combination of other people's fragranced body products containing corn glycerin and, you know, who knows what else. Um, and then also the food. <laughs> uh, I go at off hours when I need to uh, so that they're not serving hot food samples. So movie theater, I can't even walk past the door because the popcorn was just ground into the carpet and kind of permeating the entire area. Just about every medication has a chance, a strong chance, to contain cornstarch as a filler or uh, dextrose or glycerin as, I don't know, some kind of stabilizer. What do you do to take into account this incredibly sensitive allergy that you have? It's such a challenge to just survive every day when leaving your home is like play, playing a video game on hard mode. The subtitle of my blog currently is Party Like It's 1899. <laughs> Not everybody has the ability to do this, but the safest way to live if you've got this level of sensitivity to corn is to grow everything yourself if you can and uh, buy things locally from people who grow things the way that you would. Uh, all my condiments are homemade because vinegar is the most common source of acid in ketchup, mayonnaise, etc. And white vinegar is always from corn. I um, will regularly wake up and uh, go tend my chickens, make my own mayonnaise. Um, uh, I do leave my home. When I do, I take uh, daily antihistamines and mast cell stabilizers. I have been using a carbon-filtered mask since long before COVID. So something that actually happened during the pandemic is that other people started looking like me, and I stopped standing out. I, I'm hoping that masks will be normalized after this, and people will just assume that I'm trying to protect them. We'll see. That it costs money to live a clean or at least a corn-free life, right? It's not something that everybody can afford. Economic privilege is a huge, huge factor. And uh, we see people just literally starve or choose uh, to eat more corn than they probably should. And I feel like there has to be a way for it to not be as expensive, but I don't know what it is. And I've been trying to figure that out since the beginning because I basically survived this like sudden constant anaphylaxis. I was in the ER three times in two weeks um, with my face swelling up and my throat closing. And the way that I survived those first six months was by basically opening my pockets and pouring money into just whatever I thought might be safe and into whatever tools that I needed to make everything myself so that I wasn't risking a reaction. So the community that is around Corn Allergy Girl, the blog, um, it must be really diverse and coming from very different walks of life in different parts of the world. Is it an international community? Uh, it's, it's, we're very U.S.-centric, and that's um, changing with time. 
I, I think a lot of the reason that it's U.S. centric is I think honestly we were uh, ahead of the curve for starting to use corn for everything, and as the rest of the world is following suit, we're getting more and more international members. You can't grow everything you need to sustain life yourself, and it's pretty hard to grow everything that you would want to eat just in your own microclimate. I also know that when you can use bulk buying and large-scale production, you can make things affordable for people, and those are good things. On the other hand, as soon as you become very divorced from the source of your food, it becomes nearly impossible to know what happened to it. How exactly did this happen? Why is corn everywhere? It didn't just happen by coincidence. National and international policies can seem divorced from everyday life, but Bex shows us that they actually affect our bodies, our routines, and how we conduct ourselves. To better understand how those policies and systems came to be, how they were designed, we talked to Alicia Galvez, who has researched the way food and trade policy in the United States has impacted Mexico's own food system, its ecology, its culture, and Mexican people's bodies. My name is Alicia Galvez, and I'm a professor of anthropology at the CUNY Graduate Center and of Latin American and Latino Studies at Lehman College of the City University of New York. You wrote a very important book that's called Eating NAFTA, Trade, Food Policies, and the Destruction of Mexico. Could you tell us more about the book, how you got to write it, and what it is about? Well, as a cultural anthropologist, I'm always really interested in how things are experienced at the ground level, how people navigate changing dynamics um, within their families and their communities. And so trade wasn't something that I necessarily thought of as being in my purview. But what I began to see was that a lot of communities um, in rural Mexico that I've been connected to for decades through my research had started to experience a shift towards um, chronic disease, especially diabetes. And I began to see that in the last 25 years that there had really been a shift in how people were able to access food, what they were able to access, and in, and the resulting health outcomes in those communities. So people's family members needing dialysis because of kidney disease, losing their eyesight, losing limbs because of advanced diabetes that wasn't treatable um, or diagnosed on time. It eventually caused me to, to realize that the thing that had happened um, that had really altered the food landscape was the North American Free Trade Agreement. And that, in fact, even though we think of trade policies as kind of abstract and far away and something that governments think about and don't really affect the rest of us, um, not only do they impact our lives, each of us in, as individuals, but they get onto our plates and they get into our bodies in ways that generate uh, health disparities and um, very concerning health outcomes. NAFTA is very important. It's a trade agreement that has changed the ecosystem of three countries, Canada, United States, and Mexico, but also as a consequence of a good part of the world. So could you please talk about NAFTA? The problem was, and, and the problem that sets NAFTA apart from a lot of other trade deals around the world, is the inequality between the partners, because Mexico is relatively um, weaker in terms of its, its economy and its negotiating force. 
But the agreement was signed in 1994. And unlike, you know, for example, the way that the unification of, of Europe into one economic community resulted in human mobility in which people could move across borders as well as goods and capital, we see in the North American Free Trade Agreement that there was no provision for human mobility, uh, no labor mobility, but rather only goods and capital would be allowed to move across borders as though there was no border. And what we've seen from this is that um, it's really distorted the economies of all three countries. I focus mainly on the effects on Mexico, but it's caused large scale corporations to be really favored in their capacity to operate at a much larger scale than ever before with greater fluidity as though there were no borders. But that has uh, had a terrible impact on the ability of small scale producers, small scale farmers to, to operate even in the way that they used to before NAFTA, it's really constrained their capacity to, to be competitive in this new kind of global marketplace. And it's also had tremendous humanitarian consequences in terms of people not being able to move with authorization. And so it's generated a very risky, dangerous situation where people migrate without authorization and without any sort of um, status or protection. We call it the free trade agreement, but it's really about lifting regulations for certain kinds of corporations that are already set up to, to move into that space. Um, but it really generates a, a great deal more bureaucracy um, for small-scale producers. Did NAFTA contribute to the over-reliance of the United States on corn? As a cultural anthropologist, if I have any business at all, <laughs> kind of poking my nose into trade, it's in part to point out the cultural assumptions that that underlie some of these arrangements. And one of those is, is the idea of efficiency, which is this notion that whoever can kind of do something most efficiently, they should do it. And if you can't do something efficiently, you should stop doing it. And so we see this idea of efficiency being applied to corn. The United States produces more corn than anywhere. I think it's three times the next um, most productive place, which is China. Something like 95% of the corn grown in the United States is an industrialized variety that's not even edible by itself. It has to it has to be processed. So it's grown for corn syrups, corn starches, corn fillers, animal feed, and it requires very little labor power, almost no labor power because it's almost entirely mechanized. There's a wonderful documentary called King Corn where a corn farmer in Iowa kind of points around himself and says, you know, this this isn't food. This is the worst shit that anyone has ever grown. And he acknowledges that the word corn is almost a, a euphemism for this other thing that we've produced and made very central to our economy, and it's very central to our food system. But even before NAFTA, there was a whole system that had been put in place to subsidize the cultivation of corn. And uh, I wonder where that comes from and how did it all start? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you throw billions of dollars at anything, <laughs> you, you better get something in return. I mean, we've really, you know, gotten what we've paid for in the United States and we invest a tremendous amount. We have million dollar tractors and 82 billion dollars in corn subsidies, I think, in the, in the decade following NAFTA. We're putting a lot of support into it, and then we get very plentiful, very cheap corn, but it's not actually efficient. It's it's not efficient in a purely economic sense because we're investing so much out of it, and then we're, we're selling it pretty cheaply. And it's not efficient in the larger kind of ethical moral <laughs> landscape in terms of how much, how destructive that 
kind of farming is to the environment and to relationships and to land um, custodianship. And so we have described ourselves as valuing free trade and, and market capitalism. And we've created this very perverse, distorted market where it's actually not capitalist or free of regulation at all. In fact, it's incredibly mediated. By throwing you know, such heavy, heavy subsidies at the corn industry, we've encouraged a process of consolidation. And, and because we protect it and subsidize it, we don't expose it to the laws of supply and demand, which are we're told are so important to us, right? And we produce more corn than anybody ever wanted. And then we have to come up with all these Frankensteinian methods for getting rid of it, which includes doing new things in a chemistry lab to, to use the starches and sugars, um, but it also includes dumping it around the world and and ruining the chances that small-scale producers in other countries have of selling their corn, which we could argue is real corn. And so it becomes kind of a weapon of empire, in essence, that we're using to continue to ma- manipulate not only the internal markets, you know, in terms of, you know, protecting the Midwestern voters um, that are very important in our political system, but also in terms of insulating our, our, our economic system and keeping agreements like the North American Free Trade Agreement from ever being anything close to equal or or competitive. That piece, you know, is really the lie that is underneath our free trade agreement because what we have basically done is said to Mexico, don't bother growing corn, we'll take care of the corn. And you can even hear the Mexican foreign, uh, sorry, economics minister say this. He was interviewed by Bloomberg magazine and said, you know, we shouldn't grow corn in Mexico because we don't do it as efficiently as our neighbors to the north. So we'll grow the avocados, you grow the corn, and we'll have guacamole tacos together. Corn, historically in Mesoamerica, is life. Corn gave birth to humans and humans gave birth to corn. There's there's an understanding of mutual dependency. It's, It's much more than than a starch or than a commodity. It's got a tremendous amount of meaning that goes beyond its its relationship as, as, as the core part of the diet. Now, one of the tragic consequences of NAFTA, you say, is that the trade policy has shattered foodways in Mexico and it's changed what is on plates, how it gets there, what we think about it, and how it impacts our neighbors' bodies. Can you say more about these devastation that is relative really to food culture. It's, it's really sad, and that's why I use the somewhat provocative t- uh, subtitle, The Destruction of Mexico, because I really see NAFTA posing a threat to the cultural wealth and um, integrity of rural communities. It's become increasingly more difficult for people to consume what we call the milpa-based diet, which is the diet based on corn and the things that are grown with corn. So corn, beans, chiles, and squash. And, And those foods, which are such a staple part of the millennial cultures of Mesoamerica going back thousands of years, are really becoming almost elite consumer goods. Um, So we can see Michelin-starred chefs now using heirloom corn, hand-ground corn um, in their kitchens, having a a corn grinder as kind of a, a status symbol. And yet that fresh ground corn, which used to be ubiquitous and available to everyone, you know, for pennies in Mexico is no, is no longer as accessible. What has that meant 
on the plates of people all over the country, not the elites. What this has meant for for people in Mexico is that there's an increasingly um, high consumption of, of very hyper-industrialized foods, um, foods that can be purchased in a supermarket, foods that have a longer shelf life, foods that are not, not as good for health. On a day-to-day basis, we see Mexico being number one in instant noodle um, consumption in the Americas. Um, a lot of people during the workday don't have time to do more than drink Coca-Cola, which provides energy, or to get you know a sopa maruchana, an instant cup of noodles um, at a convenience store um, and fill it with boiling water because that's all that, that that's available to them in their in their you know daily routes and routines. How do you frame and position Mexico and its predicament in a global series of initiatives that are happening? Mexican food is certainly having a moment in the last uh, half decade in which we can see, you know, a real global appreciation of the sophistication of Mexican cuisine. But I really want to make a distinction between the chefs and um, social movements that are really focused on elevating indigenous knowledge and indigenous foodways and the indigenous chefs who are experts in this cuisine. And then there's sort of a columbusing effect that has occurred where there are some elite chefs that have kind of declared themselves the savior of corn culture. The problem I have with that argument is that Mexicans never stopped appreciating the tortilla or corn-based cuisine. It became less accessible to them through choices that they did not themselves make. And so the idea that then, because it's become inaccessible, someone else can salvage it and kind of speculatively drive up the price on it, to me, is is worrisome. And, you know, so I would like to always kind of turn the spotlight back on the local chefs who have never left the traditions um, and the communities in which this Indigenous knowledge has been maintained through thick and thin. And it seems like the the whole system, the whole construction is coming apart, but instead of coming apart with one main break, it's many fissures that some are noticing and some do not want to notice because they want to squeeze every juice that's left. What do you see as the breaking point? The, the signs are everywhere that the system is not working. You know, if I had to point to one thing I've noticed in the last year, it's that the pandemic revealed that our food system doesn't feed us, that we have this, you know, very complicated industrialized food system that occupies a huge part of our economy um, and that is ever more consolidated where a very small number of meat producers and agricultural producers are monopolizing such massive sectors of our food landscape and if something goes wrong in that we're going to go hungry <laughs> we saw the we saw the sh- how quickly the shelves emptied during the pandemic shutdown last march and i think it was alarming for all of us you know how little it took for the distribution systems and the production systems to fall apart and so i think there's a renewed interest in the united states in growing and eating locally and, you know, having a smaller scaled food system, 
I, you know, find myself talking a lot lately about what would a human scaled food system look like in which kind of at every turn, there's people (laughs) who are recognizable, who are members of communities, who are producing the food, preparing the food, consuming the food, and that there's more of a face-to-face relationship all along the, the food chain. We need to turn to people who are in communities where that knowledge is still present and ask them to to please teach us and help us to learn. So how do we move forward to resolve this imbalance? Are there actions that we can take to resist an all-consuming globalized system? Supporting local agriculture can be one of the many important acts of resistance. We spoke with Yira Vallejo, who, among other things, serves on the executive committee of the annual Feria de la Agrobiodiversidad, a native seed exchange that brings together over 450 campesinos from indigenous communities across the state of Oaxaca, Mexico. Yira and her husband, artist Jonathan Barbieri, have also been working with filmmaker Gustavo Vasquez to produce a documentary called Hijos del Maíz, Children of the Corn, which describes the deep bond between ancestral corn and the Mexican people. Their work not only highlights the cultural significance of corn in Mexico and the challenges posed by a globalized free trade regimen, but it also underscores how indigenous communities are at the forefront of the fight to preserve traditional foodways and ecologies. Hi, Ira. Hi, Jonathan. It is really great to speak with you. So can you begin by telling us more about the Feria del Agrobiodiversidad? Maybe paint a picture for us. The Feria takes place in Ejido, Union Zapata. It is an event that takes place once a year. Usually, it's at the end of the year when it's uh, harvest season. So all the institutions bring together this group of farmers, there are about 200, 300 farmers with their family. So you have an, an event that brings together families and they exchange not only seeds, but also knowledge. So it, it's a beautiful because you will see corns from every single species. You will see beans, you will see squash, you will see things that you have never, ever seen in your life. So it's, it's beautiful. And then you have to remember that a lot of these people, they do not speak Spanish. So they, they speak their um, indigenous language, either Zapotec, Mixtec, Chinantec. You have here a combination of 16 different language groups, 16 different ethnic groups, all speaking their own languages. But even within those languages, there are dialects. Zapotec, for example, has something like 40 different dialects. And the National Institute of Indigenous Languages uh, has counted 171 different languages in Oaxaca. So you're in this babble that's taking place, right? Um, With beautiful, colorful clothing and all of the music, wind band music and things like that. So the farmers start getting in around 5 a.m. or 4 a.m., 5 to start setting all uh, the product that they bring, all the seeds. The different organizers have different tables and uh, each family receives petate. Which is a palm, woven palm mat. You know, they put 
the, the beautiful corns, all the different seeds that they're bringing on display. And uh, they do amazing, beautiful setups with their seeds. The first three to four hours is a seed exchange. It's pure barter. Yes. So when one family goes to the other family, usually some of them, they have been coming to, to the event for so many years that they have a lot of experiences. They will tell uh, the other person if that specific seed worked in their community and uh, they bring different things. And it's, it's just amazing. So, well, I think that it's important to remember that the roots of this Feria de Agrobiodiversidad, that's, that's in Union Zapata, is very old. The roots are very old. For thousands of years, people have come together from one village to another in certain regions to exchange two things, knowledge and seeds. Knowledge is the culture and the methodology and everything else. The seed is a genetic package. And by exchanging the seeds and trying them out in their own different places, respected villages, right? The seeds themselves are in constant evolution. This is a co-evolution between human beings and a grain that they invented. We live approximately 30 kilometers from some caves called Gilanakids, which is where the oldest vestiges on earth of the domestication and um, storage of corn exists. And we have to go back probably 350 human generations to where those native scientists at that time developed corn, created corn out of a wild plant, similar looking to sugarcane actually, called teosipia, that did not exist in nature. It's not like rice that existed on the coast of Taiwan in 10,000 years ago, or wheat in the fertile uh, triangle. This grain never existed. And it takes vigorous human intervention in order for it to be propagated. Corn is sacred in Mexico, and people also have a deep knowledge and a deep awareness of corn. It's as if uh, it's like pasta in Italy. So how is it that the people of Mexico accept this GMO corn coming from the United States? Why do they drink Coca-Cola, right? The problem is that we have been so inundated since basically the 80s and basically the free, free trade agreement. Uh, we've been so inundated with American products. What did in, invade the market here in Mexico was not GMO corn so much as uh, cheap industrial corn, hybrid corn from the States, typically uh, a corn called number two yellow dent. Um, this corn sells here in the market in Mexico for two pesos, 50 centavos a kilo. Whereas a farmer can't make any money unless he takes his corn to the market at at least 10 pesos a kilo. And you have to understand that, of course, there are a lot of people in Mexico that cannot pay the, the farmer's price. Typically, a farm family, a Zapotec family or a Mixtec family or a Chinantec family, indigenous family, will be completely independent and grow their own food. And they will only sell their excess corn. 
But the corn for them is a safety net. It allows them to feed their animals. It allows them to make, just as in pasta, myriad possible uh, dishes, right? But the thing is that when you have simultaneously this very, very cheap corn coming in, right? And people are uh, watching their wallets, then uh, you end up with this new culture of a cheap corn that looks similar to their corn. So this GMO corn coming from the United States has basically crashed the market, but it has also crashed the whole ecology and ecosystem. Because of your experience with corn, you understood that there was a need to support the failure of agrobiodiversidad. Now what? What is your goal? And how do you think that these initiatives can provide a framework to design alternative food systems? In the case of the film, it was our purpose to um, use the film as a vehicle to uh, foment public awareness of these methodologies, these traditional farming methods, these systems, which could hopefully um, be applied in other places. Now we've got several groups of campesinos. For one thing, we're stabilizing the price of corn so that they earn a fair, a fair share for, the, for their work. Well, now we've come to the point where we can say, look, on that land that um, you're not using that's over there, uh, that hectare of land um, will help you to finance the, the sowing of the seeds and we'll buy whatever that land produces. You know, we share contacts and, or some of the farmers, they'll tell us, you know what, I have a little bit more corn to sell. And then I will call one of the restaurant owners and they will buy. So it's, it's beautiful because now there is an incentive for them to grow more native corn because mm -hmm. there's, there's a market. Now this is a good segue into seed banks, okay? In the campo, in the countryside, there is food autonomy. And it's really in the city where, you know, they have to get their food from the country, from the countryside. But then there's this kind of um, sinister exchange in, in that, yes, all the good food comes from the countryside, but now there's maruchin instant soups and Coca-Cola and diabetes is on the rise and everything else. And so for us, it's really important to, uh, this issue of food sovereignty and also the idea that seeds are not proprietary. Native corn is the intellectual property of the communities that have shepherded it into the 21st century during six to 10,000 years, during as many as 350 generations. These people are the, the inventors and the, and the shepherds of that corn. So the intellectual property is theirs. Seed banks have been in existence for as long as agriculture. I mean, Gila Nakits, those caves were a seed bank. A lot of people think of a seed bank as a place with a bunch of jars with grain, with, with, with the degrained kernels in the jars. But in many places, there is a system, it's basically a corn crib, you could call it, which is called a troja. And a troja is a raised structure built on sticks with a, a steeply peaked uh, palm roof that creates shade and coolness and allows circulation. And in the troja, the corn is stored within its husk. As long as the husk is closed, then the corn is protected from weevils and from all the other elements and mold and things like that. 
Throw cuts are usually very close or actually within a, an agricultural field and probably outside of the town or the village, right? So we have a system here, which is kind of like a lending library, right? That's where the, the grain is first stored and where the farmer and his family has access to that grain. And then after that, he will donate some of that grain to the seed bank. And the seed bank is there in case of a flood or high winds throws over the crop before it's ready to harvest so that the farmer can have access to, to his own seeds and replant the damaged crop. How can the systems that sustain corn be redesigned to nourish rather than deplete? Is a localized approach to food production the answer to the unjust and unbalanced food landscape in this country and in the world? And what does this look like at a global scale? Well, there is not one single answer to these questions, and nor is there one single solution to a systemic problem. Our guests today have presented us with the example of one effective approach that is echoed by several kindred initiatives in other parts of the world. They are attempts to reconnect communities with their culture and their environment for the benefit of all. These initiatives could be blueprints for national and international policy regarding agriculture, trade, and the environment. Thank you for listening to the MoMA Magazine podcast. Thank you to our guests, Bex, Alicia, Jonathan, and Yira for sharing their time and knowledge with us. For more information about their work and this episode, check out moma.org forward slash magazine. The Broken Nature podcast is hosted by me, Paola Antonelli, and produced by Isabel Custodio, with research and writing by Anna Burkhardt, and assistance from Alex Halberstadt, Prudence Pfeiffer, and Leah Dickerman. Thank you to Allianz, MoMA's partner for design and innovation. Tune in next week for the next episode in this Broken Nature series.